How's everyone doing today? Yeah. Speaking of rising, Christ is risen. I knew somebody would keep that going. It's great. So today we are continuing in our series in the Gospel according to John. And we leapt ahead in John for Good Friday and Easter Sunday, but we're now resuming our regular programming, if you will. We're going back to the point in the Gospel of John where we're at with the Community Bible Study. As some of you know, we're tracking with Wednesday nights in this sermon series. So Wednesday night we study it together, and it's a great chance to ask questions and to dig in deeply. And then Sunday morning uh, we hear that text preached on. So today we're going to look at the story of Lazarus in John 11. And, and really it's, the timing is perfect because it allows us to reflect a little more on resurrection, which Easter Sunday is all about. But Christians for centuries have considered every Sunday to be a celebration of the resurrection. And that's part of why during Lent we don't count the Sundays because on Sunday we are all about resurrection and hope. And all year, we could say the same thing, right? So we pick up the story in John 11, and Jesus has been made aware of a situation uh, where his friend Lazarus is sick. So Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary, send word to Jesus that Lazarus is sick. And Jesus, at this point, is a fair distance from Bethany, where they live. Uh, And he's right now... Uh, in trouble with the authorities. So people are out to get Jesus. And we're going to pick up the story at verse 17. And for some reason, Jesus doesn't go right away to Bethany. He waits and he arrives at a certain time later. Um, And the last thing that his disciples say, Thomas in particular, before he gets to Bethany is when they're about to leave, Thomas says, let us go and die with Jesus because they're going back into real danger because the authorities are out to get Jesus at this point. So that's the background to this text. Let's pray before we open up our Bibles. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word imparts to us this hope of the resurrection we talk about as we find ourselves in the story of hope that Jesus provides we take up that hope and we travel with him and with one another in that hope. And as we do that, we wrestle with your word because your word is that story for us. You alone have the words of eternal life. And so we pray that you would speak eternity into our hearts and minds this morning. We thank you that you alone can do that by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're reading John 11, starting at verse 17. On his arrival in Bethany, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know, I know, he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews, who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how much he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Here in John 11, as we reflect on death and resurrection, we see what Jesus has to offer. In the face of death, Jesus offers, first of all, hope. He embraces sorrow and he expresses anger. And all of these things lead in the end to restoration. So then three responses to death and to suffering, which most of us are probably familiar with. Hope, sorrow, and anger. And in the end, Jesus provides restoration. When Jesus arrives in Bethany, he encounters Mary and Martha, the two sisters of Lazarus. First, Martha goes out to him, and then Mary does. And even though both sisters say exactly the same thing to Jesus, they say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. He responds to each one of them differently. To Martha, he offers hope. She takes Jesus to task right away for his absence. If you'd been here when Lazarus was sick, she says, if only you'd arrived before his death, then my brother would still be alive. 
And as she says that, she's showing that she has faith in Jesus, but she's also clearly frustrated, maybe even angry. And Jesus replies, your brother will rise again. And Martha takes that comment as one of those things people say routinely when they're trying to comfort someone. We've all been at the receiving end of those comments. Now we need to have a bit of background here to what Jews believed about the resurrection of the dead. Their view was that in the last days, the Messiah would come and the dead would rise. And so Mary, Martha seems to think that Jesus was pointing out the correct way of thinking about her brother's death, that he was saying to her, here's the right doctrine, here's the way you should be thinking about this. But the way she responds... She says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. It's short and maybe even curt. The matter-of-fact tone that I detect here suggests that this knowledge, as knowledge alone, is empty for her. But then Jesus responds in a way that defies all of her expectations. He says simply, I am the resurrection and the life. He offers himself as the source of hope and as the promise of new life. Jesus would have astonished his followers. Once again, he'd done this before by taking on that personal name for God, the I am. In the past, he has said it, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. And four other times, here is the seventh I am statement where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And this is the biggest one of them all. Jesus isn't saying, I can give you the the right view of the resurrection. I can help you to have a kind of mental, even emotional hope in the face of death. He's saying that he is, in his person, the victory over death, the power over death, and that he will always be with us. What's important here is not head knowledge about spiritual things but it's the personal knowledge and faith that Jesus is with us, that he will accompany us through life's greatest challenges, even through death. But if that's all true, if Jesus is the resurrection, then why does he weep? Mary asks Jesus the same question as Martha, and Jesus says nothing to her. He says nothing to comfort her. He offers no hope, no truth in response to Mary. Instead, we read twice, and it's repeated for a reason, that he's deeply troubled, deeply moved, and above all, perhaps the most poignant picture in the whole of the Bible, that Jesus wept. Why would he cry? I mean, he knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew there was going to be a big party. He knew celebration was on the way. He was about to turn their weeping into joy. But he stops and he chooses to share in their sorrow. Jesus entered into our world and he really felt what we feel. He wasn't just passing through. 
He lived a life like our lives so that he could say, I am the resurrection and the life. Not only as God, but also as a man who lived his own experience of suffering. You can think of it this way. Jesus offers Martha truth first, and then he offers Mary tears. And we need both, don't we? We need the truth, and we need the tears. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection, he's telling us that he truly is God, that he's the one we've been waiting for, that he has the power to change everything, that he can save us from our sins, and we know that death is the consequence of sin. He can rescue us from death, and that he will give us renewal and life forever. He's saying that he is El Shaddai, God Almighty, creator of the whole universe, and that he holds everything together in our individual lives and in the cosmos. And then with his tears, Jesus shows us that he has come. He has arrived among us. He left his throne. He came here into the dark valleys in the dreadful days of our lives. He feels pain too. He is a man of sorrows, and he has blown apart every religious assumption in doing that. He did not keep his distance. You know, the Greeks believed that gods should be impassable, not suffering. But Jesus came close, suffered with us, pursued us to that extent. He isn't calling us to his high place, though he lives there. He isn't demanding that we measure up to his standard, that we work even harder to be good. No, he has come close to us, and we see it here most of all. He weeps with us. So how do we respond to grief? As you consider how Jesus replies to Martha and Mary, I think one of the points of this passage, or something we can take away from it, is an encouragement to us as the church to come alongside people in grief. And I rarely say this, but don't do what Jesus does. Don't give a one-line explanation. You're not Jesus. You know that, right? (laughs) Don't try to fix the situation. Many of us find that temptation hard to resist. But you cannot fix this. I was talking to Phil Trudell this week. Phil is a leader in our grief ministry here at Courtright, and he's a physician, so he has experience of people facing death. And he said that people grieve in many different ways, and they grieve at different rates also. It's a journey that's unique to each person. Some people cry right away, and they cry a lot. Others cry little or it may take years for the tears to come. And what about our responses to someone who has lost a loved one? I've talked to some of you, and you have stories that boggle my mind about what people have said to you. Judith, when her dad died, my wife's father died in a tragic car accident almost 20 years ago, and the things people said to her, 
Sometimes we say to people in grief, I know how you feel. No, you don't. Or, give it time, you'll get over it. No, you won't. Or, your mom or your dad lived a long time. It was time. Yeah. (laughs) Or, if it's a sudden death, we may play it down saying, it's good that she didn't suffer. Well, to the person who lost that loved one, there was nothing good about it. When a child has died, or in the case of a miscarriage, a person may say, well, you're young, you can have another. Or at least you have one child already. These are the things not to say. Am I being clear? Other times, people suggest, and I think this is the most common one, they do it in the most subtle ways. They suggest that you should get over your grief. And they do it with the best intentions. But church, we are a people of the cross. Easter morning doesn't change that. The hope of the resurrection does not change that. We are acquainted with sorrow. And God calls us as his church to walk with people in their grief. To listen. To learn. And to weep with them. One of the best things you can do is simply ask people to tell you stories about their loved one. That's what I do. If I get a call from the funeral home, especially if it's a family I know nothing about, then of course I'm going to listen. But even if it's someone I know very well, I want to ask, tell me the stories, to give them a chance to talk, to express their love, to remember the good things, Take the time as you come, along some, come alongside someone in grief. Don't be paranoid about saying the wrong thing, even though you know, I've given you a few great examples of the wrong thing this morning. And please, don't avoid people who are grieving. Get involved. Show up at the funeral. There's nothing more important you can do than show up at the funeral. Send a message. If you aren't able to show up at the funeral, or if you don't for some reason, it's not too late to follow up and pray. And I want to say that that for the young people who are here today, if you're in high school or if you're a young adult, uh, there is a particular calling for you. I talked a few weeks ago about how some of us, as we reflected on what Jesus says at the cross to his mother and to John, bringing them together as a new community, not a family of blood, but a family of the church. I suggested that some of us could think of ourselves as grandfathers to young people, but if you're a young person, the support, the encouragement, the difference you can make in someone's life who is older by walking with them in those years is enormous. I remember one time we did, do you remember we did A number of years ago, we did communion with tables alongside the sanctuary. You know, we normally do it. Either we send out the elements or we have you come up and receive them. We alternate month to month. But we we experimented for a year with tables alongside the sanctuary. And uh, I I still remember it was right there where Ev's sitting. There was, everybody else had left. They got up from the table. Some people found that kind of awkward, actually, so we don't do it anymore. Um, But... uh, 
right there at the table, it was Barb. Barb was sitting with Rachel Dawson, who was 16 at the time. And, and I thought, there we see the church in action. You know, young and old coming together in such a wonderful way. We had Corbright Connect yesterday. There were eight of us, and quite a few who were there were new to the church. And I talked about the history of Corbright and how our old building, in 2005 we bought this building, we moved here, but our old building is now Hospice Wellington. Some of you know this. And there are a lot of people from our church who are involved at Hospice Wellington. So how can you choose life? How can you follow Jesus into death with the good news of hope that comes from the resurrection? By not denying death, by not turning away from it like our culture does with such determination, but by loving and weeping with those who are dying, those who have lost someone. So we're called to weep with others, but Jesus is angry too. We're not comfortable with anger, are we? And to think of Jesus as angry, we think of Jesus as the good shepherd. Well, being a shepherd doesn't rule out anger. I've got to tell you, I had an uncle who was a shepherd, and he was a harsh Scottish man. <laughs> Nonetheless, the anger of Jesus leaves us unsure of what to do with it. So we've gone from the hope, first of all, that Jesus offers Martha through the sorrow that he shares with Mary, and now we encounter his rage. In verse 33, it says, Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. But you know, I think here, maybe even the translators shrink back from the anger of Jesus. The New Living Translation is better than the NIV. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. We cannot really fathom the extent to which God hates suffering and death. God hates sin, too, which is the source of death. The Greek word used here is very strong. It refers to the bellowing of an enraged animal. And it makes me think of some famous lines by the Welsh poet Dylan Thomas, who writes, Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at the close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Dylan Thomas was partly right, at least. He doesn't deny death like most of our culture. We're afraid of death and we pretend it's not there. Or we say to ourselves wrongly that death is a natural and beautiful thing. It's just the final stage of life. Rest in peace, we say. But deep down, we know that death is not our friend. The Bible says that death is an enemy. In 1 Corinthians 15, The Apostle Paul calls it the last enemy. The anger, the rage of Jesus Christ is directed at death itself and behind it at the one who has the power of death and who has come into the world to lie and to destroy. I love the way John Calvin puts this in his commentary on John 11. 
He describes Jesus as having contemplated the general misery of the whole human race and so burning with a rage at the one who oppresses us. And he says, Jesus advances to the tomb as a champion preparing for conflict. So Jesus bellows. And then, with all the power in the universe, he strides towards that tomb, towards death. And he defeats it. Christ is risen. Jesus calls Lazarus by name and his friend walks out of that tomb alive. And so Jesus brings restoration. He's the resurrection and the life. And when I think of the anger of Jesus at death and sin and the way he bellows here at the tomb, I can't help but think of Aslan, the lion in the Chronicles of Narnia who is a Christ figure. The roar of Aslan makes all evil shudder. C.S. Lewis puts it like this, and these are the words that come from Aslan himself in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Aslan says, Though the witch knew the deep magic that all traitors belong to her, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. And the witch is the great opponent of Aslan and of the children, who, if you know the story, are the protagonists in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The witch's knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked even further back, she would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, and that's what Aslan does for Edmund, the boy who betrayed him, the stone table would crack and death itself would start working backward. That is the kind of hope, the true ultimate hope that Jesus provides when he dies on the cross for our sins and to defeat death. You know, Christianity of all the world's religions see death, sees death as a defeated enemy. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? The Bible says that Jesus Christ has broken the bands of death. The worst thing that can happen to a Christian, the worst thing in the world, death, just gives us more glory. And so we mock death. Christians look death right in the eye and say, do your worst. And if you do it, you will only make me better than before. Death becomes this dark tunnel we travel through into a banquet hall. And there's no better way of telling that story than Psalm 23. If you ever wonder where to turn in your Bible when you are coming alongside someone who is grieving, Psalm 23 is always your best bet. Some of you know it. It starts off with green pastures, the Lord is my shepherd, and then you enter this dark valley, the valley of the shadow of death. Immediately when Jesus speaks in that psalm and says, I am with you, my rod and my staff, they comfort you, you come up out of that valley into what? What comes next in Psalm 23? A table. A table. 
a table. We come up through the valley of the shadow of death into the house of the Lord. He has prepared a table for us. Our cup runs over. Let's look at verse 25 again because it's so important to this passage. The one who believes in me, says Jesus, will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? He asks. The resurrection reality of Christ comes into us through that little word believe. Jesus is actually talking about two resurrections. First of all, when you die, you won't stay dead. But your body will come back to life, he promises us. You will get a new body. When you die, the Bible tells us we immediately go into the conscience presence of God. But unlike Eastern religions, Christians don't envision a bodiless eternity. We see the body as a good thing. God created our bodies And Jesus will redeem us bodily. On the last day, you will get a new flesh. But then Jesus also talks about a new kind of resurrection. He who lives and believes in me shall never die, he says. And he's talking about a new life here. This Zoe life, this abundant life, this real life, this ultimate, true, deep life. A kind of life that once it starts, never goes out. We saw it at the beginning of this sermon series when water was turned into wine. And so there's a spiritual resurrection that happens now when the Holy Spirit comes into your life. When you believe, the Spirit of God changes you and renews you. And you're transformed from one degree of splendor to the next. We sang it in that song earlier about the breath in our lungs, the Holy Spirit within us. And I, while I was in the sound booth just before the service, I wanted to read a verse from 2 Corinthians 4 that gets at this truth. It says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I get some of my best ideas, unfortunately, right before the service in the sound booth. Outwardly, we are wasting away. And we see it in each other, right? If you're middle-aged like me, I'm in my 40s, for a little bit longer. <laughs> Middle-aged people are getting uglier and uglier. We're wasting away on the outside. But the hope of the resurrection promises us that Christ, who dwells in us as the hope of glory, means that we are being renewed eternally, spiritually. And that's good news. I don't have Ann Brewster's permission to tell this story, but I'm going to anyway. Another late-breaking idea. Um, Some of you know Ann Brewster. Frank, how old is your mom now? 101? In June, she'll be 102. So uh, Ann is the most remarkable woman, and 
I visit her sometimes, and I was at St. Joe's and a couple of years ago. She was there, and we had had a nice visit together, and uh, Anne, as usual, grilled me about predestination. Tell me why we believe that again, Pastor, she said, uh, among other more pleasant topics of conversation. <laughs> and and uh, we were we were wrapping up, and she said, uh, before you go, you need to pray. And I was like, Anne, I was, I was going to pray. I, I, and the nurse had come in, so Anne said, come on over and you can pray with us. And there was someone cleaning uh, in the back, and she said, you come too, we'll all pray together. This never happens for a hospital visit, right? So all of a sudden we had a prayer meeting, thanks to Anne, uh, who's 100 years old at this point. And, and we prayed and... Anne prayed for this nurse and this other person, and at the end, the prayer ended, and Anne said to these two individuals who had joined us, she said, you can't see it, but I have Christ in me, the hope of glory, and I will never die. He is risen. Aslan is on the move. And what comes with Aslan? Spring. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. And yet, did you notice yesterday morning? I think I saw something on the ground. A little bit of something. It's still... What was that? I missed that. Manna. I'm just glad it wasn't a reference to the leaves. I'm, I'm hoping... I'm hoping to get through today without that. It's still cold outside, isn't it? But we know that thanks to Jesus laying down his life for us at the cross, death no longer has its sting. Christ has won the victory for us. The final restoration is yet to come, but Jesus, risen and alive forevermore, is on the move. So speak hope and truth to those who need it. Come alongside those who suffer and weep with them. And choose life. Get angry at the sin in your life. Do not give the devil a foothold. Keep in step with the Spirit and live in the hope of the resurrection. How do we believe? We've established it's not just a head thing, not just knowledge of the right doctrine, as important as that is. Spring's almost here, right? It's time to take off the boots. To reveal the paleness of lily-white feet. This is the liturgy of the putting on of the Birkenstocks, it's called. When we believe in Jesus, when we put our hope in him, it's not a question of how we feel. It's a question of putting him on. Clothing ourselves in his righteousness. He offers us everything. We put on the Birkenstocks of hope. And then we walk into the future that he calls us to. From winter into spring... 
You know, when Moses parts the Red Sea, the people of Israel walk through the Red Sea. And do you think they all believed that was going to be okay? Can you imagine walking through the Red Sea with these huge bodies of water to your right and to your left? Some of them, I'm sure, walked through and they were filled with faith. They believed, they had full confidence. Others would have walked through and all they were saying to themselves was, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. (laughs) Believing in Jesus is not a matter of how you feel. At the cross, Jesus says, it is finished, it is done, and I have done it for you. So walk into the hope of the resurrection. Here's the question I want to leave you with this morning. It's a question we asked on Wednesday night at Community Bible Study. What is the grave that you're in right now that Jesus could help you out of? What is it in your personal circumstances where the light of the hope of the resurrection needs to shine? I'm going to ask you to close your eyes with me. Dear God, all of us are in the valley in one way or another. It may not be the valley of the shadow of death, And yet every one of us here today knows the darkness. Knows a shadow. And Lord, we believe and we pray, help us with our unbelief. You are the one who can call people out of the grave. You speak and your words change everything. And so now in the silence, we bring to you our own personal struggles. I encourage you to name in the silence we're going to have now the darkness that you would want Jesus to deliver you from. Lord God, we praise you that you are the source of all ultimate hope. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to guide us. 
from truth to tears to anger to restoration in every area of our lives. We pray for you to come close to us and show us how we can walk in the light, in the company of your people, in the faith that you provide as a gift to us. In the hope of the resurrection, we pray. Amen.